This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. So why isn't Leviticus boring, irrelevant, and drier than the dust of Sinai? Yeah, I mean, you've just summarized right there how so many people feel. It's interesting, in fact, Drew, when people find out you've been studying Leviticus for 15 or 20 years, right? And, I mean, I've learned a lot of important things over the years. And one of those is, if you ever want to get out of a conversation at a dinner party, you just tell people, (laughs) I've been studying Leviticus 15 or 20 years. Yeah, and you get different responses, too. Some people look at you, like, confused because they're thinking either, what is Leviticus or how could you study it that long? Um, But my favorite ones are the ones who smile. And it's the kind of smile that says, oh, well, at least he's not hurting anyone. You know, so. (laughs) But as I read Leviticus, even though many people think it's drier than the dust of Sinai, I actually think it's as lush as the Garden of Eden. Leviticus, instead of just a book of old rules, is actually setting forth a vision that helps us understand who we are as people, what it means to relate properly to the God who made us, and how to fill this world with his kingdom of goodness, justice, mercy, and love. What if Leviticus did that? I actually think that's exactly what Leviticus does. If we take the time to read it, and understand it, it has so much to say to us about some of the most common questions that we deal with as human beings. Do you think um, Leviticus kind of has, I I call it the annual reading plan problem of, you know, someone starts in January saying, I'm going to listen or read to the whole Bible. Sure. And and they, they, they stump it out through the end of Exodus, right? Yes. If they (laughs) make it through the tabernacle instructions. Right, right, right. And then by the time they hit Leviticus, they're like, oh, brother, I can't. And there is this kind of, you know, uh, not to invoke anybody's particular views of the literary structure of Leviticus, but there is kind of like this, the entryway into Leviticus as a piece of literature is steep. It is. (laughs) Right. It demands quite a bit. So uh, why do you see that as lush and green and fertile and ready, uh, ready to help us understand ourselves, the world and God? Great question. One of the reasons that we find that entry point so steep is that as a genre, Leviticus is almost entirely law. You get a a few narratives, like two narratives, uh, one of which involves uh, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, who get obliterated, and another of which involves somebody who's stoned to death for blasphemy. But aside from that, it's mostly law. And no one goes home at night thinking, okay, I'm just going to curl down with a good 27 chapters of law, right? Mm. That's, that's really tough for us. But it's actually understanding law and how law works that makes Leviticus so lush and green because laws are a reflection of the values of the lawgiver. I think we understand that intuitively. Like, why do we have laws against murder? I'll ask my classes and someone will say, well, because we value life. Great. Why do we have laws against stealing? And someone will say, well, we, have, we value the right to private property. Laws reflect the values of the lawgiver. Well, Leviticus is 
basically 20 27 chapters of law given by the Lord, which means properly understood, we have this opportunity to have this window into the things that the Lord values most. And so with my classes, I'll sometimes then begin to go through different laws and we'll begin to think through, okay, what are some of the values informing these laws and how should those inform how we live? Hmm. Um, Can I, I want to get a little bit more nerdy on this topic because yeah. um, it, when, when you look at literature in the ancient Near East more broadly, most people would put Leviticus in the ritual instructions category and mm-hmm. they'd separate that out from something like the laws of Eshnuna or the laws of Hammurabi. Mm-hmm. So you just casually asserted that it was law. Yes. Um, so how do you, how do you see that conflation of law and ritual? And like, yeah. how do you, how do you differentiate, for instance, Leviticus 19, yeah. which seems to be doing something much more like what most people think of as ancient law from Leviticus one through four, one through five. Right. Yeah, Leviticus 19 is kind of the the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Leviticus, Mm. right? And that's where, of course, you get the famous verse, love your neighbor as yourself. And it is very different than the feel, at least for us, of Leviticus 1 through 4, which has, or Leviticus 1 through 7 for that matter, which talks about Mm -hmm. different types of sacrifices, the burnt offering or the grain offering or the fellowship or peace offering, this kind of thing. And I think as we try and compare those, we need to keep a few different things in mind. The first thing we need to keep in mind is that we're often approaching this with a sacred-secular divide mm. uh, or an everyday life, ritual life divide that is not really a divide for those in ancient Israel. This is, this is life. It's not like, here's my ritual life and here's my secular life. No, this is all part of life. So I think that's a starting point is just to recognize, okay, they're, they're not making that same distinction that we are. Uh, or if they are, they, it's just much more woven together for them, might be a better way of saying it. The second thing to note is that even in those so-called ritual laws, you, you begin to learn fascinating things about the Lord, his purposes for us, who he is. i just give you a couple examples. Uh, Leviticus chapter 1, burnt offering. As you read through these laws, one of the main things it says is you have to bring a blameless male uh, animal to be offered. And you and I are looking at that and we're thinking, what in the world? why do you have to bring a blameless male? And Well, it's because in the ancient world, if you offered, uh, well, the most expensive animal, the most costly animal were the ones that had no physical blemishes. And by requiring a blameless male, the Lord, what's the value behind that? The Lord's trying to help his people to see that he is worth their very best. In fact, you might remember later in Malachi, the Lord is reproving the people. And he says, uh, you bring blind animals for sacrifice, right? Which in the ancient world, that's kind of like putting an empty offering envelope in the, in the offering plate, right? right? People think you're making an offering because you bring a blind animal. If you lead it right up to the priest and then the priest takes it, everyone thinks, hey, he's just offered this great animal. But the Lord goes on to say, offer them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? And then the Israelite knew, I'm not going to offer this to the governor. Are you kidding me? The governor, <laughs> he'd have my head if he knew I gave him. Because when you give somebody a secondhand gift, you're saying to them, you're not really worth my best, hmm. right? So there's a value you begin to see in ritual law. Second quick example would be in Leviticus chapter three, he's talking about the fellowship or the peace offering. And there's this emphasis, all fat is the Lord's. The fat always has to be burnt up. 
And you and I can read that as moderns and think, well, maybe this was a health-related reason or whatever. And no, it's because the fat represented the very best part of the meat. That's where sweetness is. In fact, verses in the Psalms talk about the fat of the wheat. Hmm. Wheat doesn't have fat. What are they? They mean the very best part of it. And so again, you're seeing the Lord emphasizing the importance of understanding who he is. Because if we don't understand who he is, we've lost our North Star. We Hmm. can't orient the rest of our life correctly. Orienting our life correctly always begins with understanding, first and foremost, who God is. It's only in light of that that we understand who we are. So every every semester when I teach um, Leviticus and I have students read that, you know, one through one through five, one through six around there, I think I make them stop at five just to mm-hmm. give them a break. Yeah. Um, and they say, uh, so so what's this burn offering for? Yes. And I say, well, and I, I always like to tease them a little bit and say, well, what does it say it's for? Uh-huh. <laughs> Go read it again. See, uh, and you kind of instantly run, uh, you run into this problem that, there is a ritual world that is occurring uh, mm-hmm. that Leviticus seems to be referring to, but is not telling you all about it. Right. right? Yeah. So what do you make of this kind of the hiddenness of the ritual world of, of Leviticus, uh, as opposed to the kind of the textual version of it, what's written out? Yeah. The first thing that I think of is part of the reason for some of the hiddenness is how well it was understood by the original audience. And even if you're reading through the ritual instructions about how you slaughter an animal, they're not full enough for those who have no idea what they're doing. Okay, right? let, let's stop there because I say this all the time. I've been through this. I've, worked, I've watched live animal sacrifices. Uh-huh. I absolutely believe this is true. Yeah. But give us a little proof here. Yeah, so it just says skin the animal. That's an incredibly technical skill to do. You just don't sit down and skin an ox. You know, you have to be trained in it. And actually, it's Mm. interesting as you go through the Hebrew, uh, when they talk about who's doing some of these actions, if it's an action related to the altar, clearly the priests do it. Mm. But if it's not an altar action, uh, there's often this generic he. Mm. And I think that's because sometimes it's probably the Levites who are there who because lots of the Israelites would not have known how to do slaughter and would not have known a bunch of things. So, Wait, okay, sorry, rabbit trail. Yeah. Why wouldn't an Israelite have not, why wouldn't they have known how to skin an animal and slaughter an animal properly? Yeah, well, some of them would, but some of them would have just been more focused on the agrarian side of things. Yeah. And slaughtering an animal was not a common occurrence anyway. Yeah. Uh, so who's going to be the best at it? Well, it's going to be somebody who's working at the tabernacle, who's doing this kind of thing all the time. So if I've taught in Brazil quite a bit, and I think there is this uh, assumption amongst mm-hmm. probably Americans, Texans as well, you know, your general big Montana, you know, okay. that, that the ancient people are just eating meat left and right, and that this is their basic sustenance. I think okay. a lot of people have trouble realizing that grain sacrifices are actually uh, uh, considered a real sacrifice as Absolutely. well. And that meat was kind of a scarce item there. Um, so mm-hmm. do you, do you see, um, well, I guess, how do you, how do you teach on this, uh, what's going on with meat and how Israelites understand meat and how they treat animals, etc.? Yeah. So on the one hand, you, you try to make clear to folks, meat was a rarity. 
uh, unless you were very, very rich. Only the very rich would have meat regularly. Otherwise, it was a rarity. Um, uh, and then I, I try to help people, though, understand, and maybe I'll kind of come at your question from a side angle, Drew, uh, and that is how a meal functions in ancient mm. Israel, uh, especially when you get to the fellowship offering, or it's sometimes translated the peace offering, depending on what English version you're reading. And in the ancient world, a meal was often a symbol of covenant um, ratification and covenant partnership. So you might remember in Exodus, after the Ten Commandments are given, you have this, what to us seems like this crazy scene where Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 elders, they go up the mountain and it says, and they see the God of Israel and they ate and they drank. And you, you and I are looking at our Bibles to see, is this a textual corruption of some sort? Is there a footnote here? What in the world's going on? Well, what's going on is they've just entered into the covenant with the Lord. And the way you signed on the dotted line was by having a meal together. And you see this clearly in places like Genesis, Jacob and Laban. They enter a covenant. They have a meal together. And so that's what's happening on the mountain. In fact, the elders are probably eating the fellowship sacrifices that were mm. just made at the bottom of the mountain. And that becomes significant. Now, if I just go from here, big picture for a second. So if that's what's going on with a fellowship offering meal in Israel, because some of the meat went to the Lord, some of the meat went to the offer, some of the meat went to the priest. And if we understand this as reenacting this uh, covenant ceremony, mm. it's reminding the Israelites not only of their covenant relationship with the Lord and their covenant obligations with him, but also they're having this meal with their Israelite brothers and sisters. And so it's this dual reminder, which you springboard forward is the background for the Lord's supper. Hmm. It's this covenant renewal ceremony where we're remembering our obligations to the Lord, his promises to us and our obligations to one another, which is the reason Paul says, if you eat of it unworthily, what's unworthily in that context, eating it, as though the brother beside you is not worthy of your respect and love. Mm. That's what Paul's talking about, because it's the covenant meal. In some ways, it's an easy concept because we can think of, well, weddings often have meals, which are covenant-like events. I'm yeah. not sure if they're actually covenantal or not. But, yeah. Um, and uh, even better ones to this day, same practice, right? Uh, all treaties are made with a meal and you have the treaty is not done until the meal is done. Right? Interesting. Um, so, and that worthy issue, though, is I think one of the things that's often missed in Leviticus, because I, I think it's very easy if you're reading it from a Western frame of mind, individualistic, it all feels very transactional. Like okay. you do this thing, you know, I did this thing. So therefore I need to do this thing to get God to smell this thing. And then we're okay. good to go. Um, but it's, it's made true or it's at least spoken about in Leviticus and certainly in Exodus as well. And then the prophets love to remind Israel just bringing the thing is not the thing that God wants, right? Absolutely. Um, so I guess that that hidden connection, I call it now the biography of the rituals of Israel, that um, what is happening in the, the homestead actually counts at the altar, mm. um, mm -hmm. which seems to be the, the connection the, that the, the prophets want to make. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But here, let me give you an example. And you, I, I ask my Jewish friends this, and they give me very Jewish answers, ta- very Talmudic answers. Okay. But if you were a priest and somebody brought a sin sacrifice of grain for you and said, I, I've collected this from my field, this is for my sins, you know, can you offer this as a sacrifice on behalf of my sins? Do you think a priest has the right to say, was the field which this grain was collected from were the edges left for the sojourner and the poor? And if the answer is no, that the priest has the right to say, I'm not offering this. I've never thought of this question before, Drew. This is my biography question. Yeah, that's a fantastic (laughs) question. Yeah, I think he would. Because, uh, and this takes us back to, you know, when you're talking about the values uh, that are behind the laws, the reason that you have that gleaning law is because of the Lord's care for the poor. Hmm. And, you know, what you just identified would be a perfect example of what the prophets later come back to. And the Lord himself, you know, I hate your festivals. Hmm. You know, you've got blood on your hands. And, and actually what's fascinating in Leviticus itself. So here's the closest you get to it. Leviticus itself in chapter five, there's a law that's given uh, and it might be chapter six in the English, They're right around Leviticus five, six, the Hebrew and the English versification differs a bit, but um, it's for a guilt offering or oh, sometimes yeah. known as a reparation offering. And when you read through this law, uh, yeah, in the English, it's six, one through seven in Hebrew, it's five, 20 through 26. But when you read through this law, the first thing it's what, what has happened here is that somebody has sinned by basically lying and then swearing about it in order to defraud somebody or take from them in some way. And of course, because you swore an oath in the name of the Lord, you've got to bring a sacrifice for that. But you've also stolen from this person. The first thing you have to do is confess to them, Hmm. repay to them plus 20%, you know, which that's in itself a good model for what does repentance look like? Not just saying you're sorry, but correcting the wrong wherever you can as Mm -hmm. abundantly as you can. You slander somebody online. You just don't go to them privately and say, I'm sorry. Mm. You know, Uh, I mean, you'd want to ask them, are you okay if I go back online and make clear that I, Mm. you know, Um, so you do that and then you come and you bring your sacrifice. And that's, I think the model In fact, later on, when Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and they'll remember that your brother has something against you, first go be reconciled to your brother. I think he's exegeting this passage for us. Wow. Yeah, that's good. Um, So you said that you think that Leviticus teaches us about what it means to be a human, what it means to relate to God, what it means to fill the world with his justice and righteousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, I I think relating to God, that's the one most people will get, what yeah. it means to relate to God, although we, yeah. we should come back to that. I, I wonder how you, you take that, what it means to be a human. Um, how, how does Leviticus under, help us to understand what it means to be a human? If mm-hmm. A, if we were to practice it, and B, now that we reflect on it as Christians. So one of the most important questions that we can ask is, as a human being, what am I here for? What's my purpose? Where do I find meaning, satisfaction in life? And the biblical answer again and again is you find that in your relationship with God. Mm. You've been designed for him. And it's only when you live in accord with that design that you actually do begin to find meaning and fulfillment in life. And so 
that answer about your humanity is actually connected to the answer about, well, what does it mean to know God, to love him, to serve him? All of those questions that Leviticus focuses so much on. Um, if I were to try to get more specific there, as you go through these different laws, one of the things that happens, in fact, let me tell you a story. So in class one year, I required of my students, the whole class, this was a class, it was actually on Leviticus, just Leviticus. And yes, if people listening are wondering, students did sign up, they did come to class. <laughs> it's an elective. <laughs> and this was an elective. And, uh, but anyway, one of the assignments was they had to live Levitically for an entire week. They had to follow as many laws of Leviticus as they could without getting arrested. And so uh, as, as they did this, they had to keep, you know, a journal and, you know, reading through those was fun. Like one guy, his entry for day two was simply, I really miss bacon. I mean, this was how, you know, it struck them. But what was fascinating, Drew, is that on the way through here, in almost every journal, sometime around day three or day four, the students would say, I have been spending the past two, three days uh, thinking about ritual purity and ritual impurity all day long. Mm. And all of a sudden it struck me. If that's how much I'm supposed to think about ritual purity and impurity, how much more am I supposed to think about moral purity and mm. impurity? Oh my goodness, I serve such a holy God. And all of a sudden, I mean, reading through these, I had my own personal revival. It was just mm. so moving. And these students, what they were seeing is, this is what I've been created for. Um, the, these laws of the Lord, they mark out a path of a path of goodness, a path of justice, a path of mercy, a path. Of, and he wants me in that path. That's what I've been created to do. Mm. And it was through following some of the laws of Leviticus that they ended up they ended up there. That's amazing. I, I've done m ritual exercises where I ask students to quit doing things. Yeah. Like quit watching screens, quit listening to music uh, in the yeah. ways, that kind of stuff. But uh, I've never done that. That's a great, great idea. Um, yeah. When you did that, did you know exactly how it was going to go? Did you already have in your mind the way it was going to go? Or was this a complete experiment? I, it was a complete experiment. I had yeah. no idea what would happen on the other end. The other thing that was fascinating was that it really normalized ritual impurity for our class. And here's what mm. I mean by that. Uh, if you're non-Jewish and, and you come from a Western culture, because there are cultures even today that have ritual purity and impurity, but if you're not um, Jewish, you're not coming, and you're coming from Western culture, it's easy to think, oh, if you're impure, you would feel shame. Right. And to associate right. impurity with shame. Well, the class, by day two or three, they were like, oh, no, this is just like having a cold. Mm. Everyone deals with this. This is everyday uh, life. In fact, I came into class on like the second or third day, and I noticed one of the female students was sitting at the end of her row in a camp chair that she had brought with her. And I looked and I thought, why is she doing, oh, I know why she, and, but by that point it was so normalized right. that this student did that. And so it actually helped them in reading some of these laws because I think previously 
they would read through these laws and think, well, especially for the women, this seems so unfair because they'd be in the shame all the time and beginning to realize, oh, no, this was so common for male mm. and for female across the entire society. It was, it was like having a cold. That's brilliant. Um, that's a good lesson for all of us because I do think um, I'm working on a book on biblical law. And I think one of the main things I'm trying to overcome with the reader, which I, it may be impossible, is everything looks like it's a shame-inducing activity in the biblical law. Uh-huh. And same way a lot of people think about uh, the Muslim hijab as well. And But you'll hear women say, no, no, this is what liberates me. This is what makes me feel dignity and pride and huh. uh, and loved and protected. Um, so I think, yeah, entering that space with your own body is is the way, uh, the way through. I always yeah. think of it like um, I watched this documentary on foodborne illnesses. Yes. And and the section on chicken, handling chicken meat, well, I eat chicken all the, like, you know, I cook raw chicken all the time. Yeah. And I, I feel like uh, in the middle of Leviticus when I have raw chicken juice on my hands. Yeah, like, sure. Absolutely. Like, can I, can I touch the soap dispenser, but I'm getting, you know, chicken on it. You know? Right, right. Finally, I want to ask you about, um, you, you've written several books on, on Leviticus uh, commentaries, the Tyndall commentary, the Zondervan exegetical commentary, and you said you published just the notes that you cut out of it as a separate book, yeah. which you got to be some kind of a boss to do that. I don't know. And uh, but well, I, got, I got to the end of the, the Zondervan one, and I had uh, overshot by 160,000 words. Yeah, which has made me which is lose. like twice my dissertation, my PhD dissertation. Right. Well, <laughs> I've lost all moral authority to require my students to stay to uh, page limits, and I'm just embracing that hypocrisy right now. But yeah, so I turned it into a separate book. So that to say, you've thought about this quite a bit, um, and I and I have to think that when people hear you say, "Oh, that Leviticus teaches us about what it means to spread God's justice into the world. Mm-hmm. Unless people have really paid a lot of attention to Leviticus, that's the one that's going to stymie them and go like, wait, what is he talking about justice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or he's, or they're going to think you mean, yes, kill these types of people. Right? Ah, uh, right. So what did you mean when you said spread his justice into the world? So as you go through the laws, you begin to see uh, and begin to see the Lord's values on different things. All of a sudden, uh, Leviticus 19, of course, is one of the best examples. As you read through that chapter, you've got not only the gleaning law, which uh, if people haven't read it, the Israelites had to leave one side of their field ungleaned. And it was very evident whether you were keeping that law or not. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I'm sorry, unharvested, unharvested. And it was very evident whether you were keeping that law or not. I mean, people could see. But by keeping it, all of a sudden the poor... Um, the sojourner, the widow, they could go through not only providing for them, but providing dignity because they're getting their grain by the sweat of their brow. Mm. So you begin to see the Lord's values that way. You keep reading through Leviticus 19 and you get laws which talk about not putting a stumbling block in front of the blind or cursing the death. This is a real jerk mood. mood uh, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and it's, it's actually a, almost a proverbial type law. Right. Because it's so clear that this is saying you don't take advantage of other people. You keep going through Leviticus and you get to laws which say you will have one law for mm-hmm. the native citizen and for the sojourner. Mm-hmm. And the sojourners were the easiest ones to oppress. 
And in fact, when you go through Leviticus 19, there are different uh, moral commands that are given that are given in the context of a situation where the strong could easily take uh, advantage of the weak. And there's a certain Hebrew phrase here. Not a lot of folks have picked up on this, but it says you will fear from before, literally, Hmm. or woodenly, from before the Lord your God. And that phrase from before is used elsewhere when uh, it's it's mipne. Mipne, Yeah, so it's from before. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mipne. And it's used in other places where the object causing the fear is actually present. Hmm. And it's a way of saying, hey, you person who's in the position of advantage, you should literally be afraid. We're not talking reverence here. We're talking like actual fear. If you're in the process of taking advantage of this weaker person, you, you should be scared about mm. what God might do to you. And these, these are even little hidden acts like cheat weights on your scales, Absolutely. Which, which they've discovered uh, instance of the instances. Oh, of interesting. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and I love that it begins with love your neighbor as yourself and, and it kind yes. of cornerstones with, and love the foreigner as yourself for you were once foreigners land of Egypt. Right. Yeah. And, and even love your neighbor as yourself. You read through that. That's in, we read it and we think, oh, that's some generic, be nice to all people. But this is in the context of those who have wronged you. Mm -hmm. And loving your neighbor as yourself is, that's more about forgiving, giving them the forgiveness that you would want others to give to you when you had committed something that was wrong. Yeah. Well, I hope some people have gotten a sense of why we get so jazzed about Leviticus, the most, uh, disabused book of the Bible, I think, next to numbers, you know, the, the, the twin, yeah. the, the twin, the twin redheaded stepchildren of the Bible. So that's right. Absolutely. Can, can I give you my, uh, my, probably my favorite verse from Leviticus through? Yeah, go for it. So Leviticus seventeen eleven. it's right in the midst of a chapter that's talking about sacrifice. And it begins to explain, this is one of the only places in Leviticus, actually, that talks about the rationale behind sacrifice. Mm. You mentioned how often we don't get that. This is one of the few places that gives it. And almost every time I'm taking communion, I say this verse to myself. Mm. And the verse is, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Ki nefesh habasar badam hi. And then in the Hebrew, the translation is, and um, the English translation usually says, and I have given it to you on the altar. But in the Hebrew, it says, there's an extra I in there. And I, I have given it to you upon the altar. And what this does, Baruch Schwartz described it this way, it reverses the conceptual direction of sacrifice. Mm. We think of sacrifice as something we give to God. And of course it is. But in this verse, he's saying sacrifice is something that I provide mm. to you. This whole system only works because I allow it to. And, and I say it every time I take communion, of course, because a verse like that points us forward to Romans 5 eight. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ mm. died for us. God's the one who provides the ultimate sacrifice for us. Uh, and because of the way it points to Jesus, I just, that's my favorite verse, maybe in the Old Testament. Wow. Yeah, it's the exact rhetoric of Hosea, is it Hosea 1 or 2, where he says, the gifts I've given 
that I lavished upon her, she turned and gave to Baal, right? Uh, mm. That's wonderful. Well, Dr. J. Sklar, thank you so much for your wisdom and walking us through uh, all the insights. And again, I think we just got the, the very tip of the surface of your insights. Um, so I want to turn people towards those commentaries that you keep cranking out uh, in the, by the uh, hundreds of pages uh, right. on the book of Leviticus so that yeah. people can uh, hear what God says through his law. Uh, thank you very much for being with us. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 